Did you know that this year, KRCL listeners helped plant more than a thousand trees in the Salt Lake Valley with Tree Utah? It's just amazing what we can do together, and we are so grateful to everyone who made this happen. You still have time to add a tree to the forest with the best soundtrack with your year-end gift at krcl.org. And thank you so much. This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up on the show tonight, Utah Youth for Environmental Solutions and their upcoming online workshop in collaboration with the Utah chapter of the Sierra Club and Movement Building Medicine. This event itself next week is a collaboration with artists, storytellers, and community caregivers in Utah and surrounding regions. They're going to talk about how art, stories, music, and movement facilitate collective healing, community care, and transformation. And you're going to get a preview with community co-host Nick Burns later this hour. Also on the way, ProPublica reporter Eli Hager. I spoke with him earlier this week about his latest article in collaboration with the Salt Lake Tribune. It's called Utah Makes Welfare So Hard to Get. Some feel they must join the LDS Church to get aid. I'll also check in with Katherine Kitterman of Better Days, and they have an art contest. She started it, open to 4th through 12th graders. They're also wanting you to weigh in on a public survey about the new Museum of Utah. It's scheduled to open in 2024, and you have a chance to shape our first state history museum. Of course, where's Martha? And some Better Days stocking stuffers for you to consider. First, though, I want to remind you about all the ways you can make a difference this holiday season. Your donations, both of new and gently used items and cash, frankly, are welcome year-round with so many nonprofits in our community. But it means just that much more during the holiday season to help feed folks, clothe them, and make sure they have a great Christmas. If you go to krcl.org, right there on the homepage, one of the first or second sliders is a post with a listing of all the drives I've been able to find. And you can go to the Rallies and Resources tab under Community Affairs to see events as the dates approach or the deadlines. For instance, Friday morning from 7.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. up at the Eccles Broadcast Center, our friends at PBS Utah are holding their 2021 Winter Food and Clothing Drive. They're asking you to drive up and drop off frozen turkeys, hams, and other food or clothing items to help Utah families in need this holiday season. Those items and any donations you make will go to Crossroads Urban Center. Saturday from 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at the Salt Lake City and County Building, which is 451 South State Street. Support our unsheltered neighbors by helping Salt Lake City and Volunteers of America collect and sort warm winter clothes. Your donations will replenish Volunteers of America's warm clothing collection, and it will later be distributed to unsheltered individuals in need. You drive up, drop off, you're good as gold. And now I wanted to shine a light on the good work of Utah Community Action, a nonprofit that does such great work for people in our community. And in fact, on Friday morning, they're going to be helping to bring Christmas to so many people who otherwise wouldn't have one this year with their Operation Chimney Drop. Let's pass the microphone and find out more. Debbie, will you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Debbie Mintoft, and I have the privilege of working here with Utah Community Action. Wonderful. So tell us about Operation Chimney Drop. This is, I'm sure, something that's anticipated year-round. It brings such joy to people, including those who help put it on. Well, it's a program where people are nominated to receive assistance and support um, 
we have a we have various different programs here at Utah Community Action. We have adult education, case management, and housing, Head Start, utility assistance, nutrition and emergency food, service hubs, and also weatherization for homes. And each person and various people in those departments nominate some of their clients for assistance with this uh, Operation Chimney Drop. So people are nominated, and what it consists of is gifts, um, which consist of needs and wants. They get two needs and two wants, and everything is provided by the community who either provide the actual items or donations to help make these contributions to families that are in need this season to make their holidays um, a lot more enjoyable. Just one of the many great things that you do, and I'm always looking forward to amplifying this work. This is happening on Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Do you still have a few needs that people might be able to help with if they got online and donated today? Well, I think for the actual Operation Chimney Drop, we're probably all taken care of because it's quite a massive logistical effort. And I think things are all bundled and ready to go up in the uh, Utah North Pole. However, if anyone does want to donate, we do have all our programs going on all the time. So uh, you can definitely donate at uh, utahca.org and we'd be more than happy to take any donations and be assured they're going to a great cause. Um, one thing that actually that um, is really fun about the program is that 31 seniors also receive a little parcel um, and again, they have two needs and two wants in this in this package that they get and also a gift basket of fruit. So I think that's also something really special. These are homebound seniors. And again, it's something that really makes their holidays a lot brighter. I was reading on Facebook, catching up on the work you've been doing over the year at Utah Community Action, and noticed that just in general, Monday through Friday, 8 to 4, folks can drop off needed items. And the post I saw in particular was for the Welcome Baby and Prenatal Program. So we're talking diaper wipes, diapers for kids uh, sizes 3 to 4, children's books ages 0 to 3, burp cloths, blankets, bottles, pacifiers, onesies, and other baby items. So folks, um, despite Operation Chimney Drop being fully uh, vetted or fully or being full, <laughs> there is still <laughs> so much that you can do, right? Right, Debbie? There's, absolutely. And there's also opportunities to volunteer and help out um, in so many different ways. So please do visit our website or call us as well. What's the website and the phone number? The website is utahca.org and our phone number is 801-359-2444. Debbie, thank you so much. You have a great holiday season. Okay. Thank you so very much. I appreciate, I appreciate everything you do. Thank you. Debbie Mintoff of Utah Community Action, another nonprofit in our community. I hope you'll consider them as you're making your donations this year, whether that's in-kind or a financial contribution before the end of the year. You can find links to the nonprofit in tonight's show notes, which will be posted online at krcl.org later this evening. And now my conversation recorded earlier this week with ProPublica reporter Eli Hager. ProPublica is a Pulitzer-winning nonprofit newsroom focused on investigative journalism in the public interest 
And a recent article published in collaboration with the Salt Lake Tribune may have caught your eye the way it caught mine, and that is this. Utah makes welfare so hard to get, some people feel, some feel they must join the LDS Church to get aid. So what tippled you to this? And uh, I know that Utah has a reputation for volunteerism and its predominant religion, the LDS Church, is known for the services it offers to people. Is that uh, what kind of piqued your interest? Um, partly, um, another reason that why, why we decided to do the story is that we're doing a series of stories about um, welfare across the Southwest. Um, it's the 25th anniversary of welfare reform, that, that um, law that was passed during the Clinton administration in 1996. And we wanted to look at a part of the country that's changing very rapidly in terms of its demographics. Utah is actually the fastest growing state in the nation. And what once was a hugely LDS or Mormon state um, is now less so, um, and there's all kinds of people moving in. And we wanted to see how, you know, these changes are affecting the safety net available to people experiencing poverty in these states. And you talk in the article about a memorandum of understanding between the LDS Church and the state of Utah that you obtained. What is this memorandum of understanding? Well, basically, it's an agreement between the state and the church saying that the state will essentially take credit for the welfare work uh, or a percentage of the welfare work that the LDS church does. Um, And the reason they do this is because under federal law, um, each state is required to put in a certain amount of effort toward fighting poverty. Um, But um, one of the ways that Utah has been able to get out of some of this requirement is by, as I said, taking credit for um, a percentage of the hours of, of work that the, the church puts into trying, trying to help poor people. And that, that's allowed the state of Utah to get out of spending $75 million over the past decade on um, efforts to, to help the poor. Money that would otherwise have gone in addition to helping the poor. And for me, that doesn't pass a sniff test, but is it legal? Is it allowed under the law? Well, the the practice itself of counting some of the work of private organizations as the state's own is actually allowed under the regulations of that 1996 welfare reform law. And that's one of the things we wanted to highlight is that 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 practice goes on. Um, There's about a dozen or so other states that engage in it, although not all in this way where they're partnered with a a religious institution. Um, the, The larger question is whether this kind of um, implicit partnership between the state and the church is constitutional under the First Amendment, which prevents the establishment of, of, of religion. Um, I talked to several constitutional law experts and, um, you know, it, the larger question is whether the overall system for providing assistance to the poor in Utah is um, uh, religiously neutral or not, and whether people can get, you know, ha- have, have real choice to 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 be able to get services without having to partake in religion. As you reported, the chair of Mormon studies at the University of Utah told you, if a state's premier social safety net is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what does that mean if you're not one? And you were actually able to talk to quite a few Utahns who have been caught kind of between the state and the LDS Church in trying to get services. Can you tell us about one or two of them and what they've experienced? I think the one that we that we lead with in our story kind of um, epitomizes some of these issues. Um, her name is Danielle Bellamy. Uh, she's lives in a rapidly gentrifying 
part of Salt Lake City, which, you know, as I mentioned, is one of the fastest growing parts of the country. Um, the rent is growing up dramatically and she and her two daughters um, are, are having to are actually now going to have to move out and they're worried about becoming homeless. Um, part of the issue is that Danielle, the, the mother, has severe health problems and is um, very regularly in the hospital for, for weeks at a time. Um, her two daughters go to work, um, but it's not quite enough to, to, to pay that rent. Um, in any event, she went to the state of Utah to ask for um, a small amount of cash assistance to help with the situation. Um, she was denied for her family's income being slightly too high because there's a very rigid income um, threshold that you can't be over if you want to get any, any government help. And um, according to the family, they were the state caseworkers explicitly directed them to go ask for help from the LDS church instead. Um, and the, when the Bellamy family went to the LDS church for help, um, Danielle was asked to read out loud from the Book of Mormon, to watch um, LDS videos, and to set a date to get baptized in order to get the help. And that kind of captures what the, you know, as much good as the LDS church does, both in Utah and around the world, kind of captures what the problem is with a state leaving it to the church to help the poor because they might have to partake in religious activities. You talk to several folks within the state of Utah who work in this kind of area, and they acknowledge that this is how it works. And many times they they tell folks who are applying for assistance to the state, have you talked to the LDS church? In all fairness, they say, have you talked to churches in your in your area, but the LDS Church is the one that is the largest social service provider outside of the government here in Utah, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, most caseworkers I spoke with um, said that they would often suggest that. They would also suggest some other um, charitable groups. There's also Catholic Community Services. Um, you know, there's food banks in the area, things like that, they, um, that they would suggest. But sometimes it's it's almost more implicit the, um, the the fact that people are pressured to go to the church. I talked to a lot of people who just, it's so incredibly difficult to get help from the state. I mean, last year, um, 1,300 out of 1,400 applications for help from the state were rejected um, every single month. Um, and, that, and that's during the pandemic when so many people needed help. Um, and so it's just very difficult to get the help from the state. And people know that the church is large and the church has a lot of money and has this welfare program, and they, they, they kind of feel that they have to go there, even if they're not explicitly told to. And what did members of the church administration tell you? Were you able to get an interview? Um, I was not able to get an on-the-record interview. Um, I did speak to a church spokesman on background, and he um, you know, emphasized um, that stories like Danielle Bellamy's um, may indeed happen, but um, there are thousands of other people across the state and indeed across the country and the world who would vouch for um, what the LDS church does um, for them, for low-income people, um, which is very true. I mean, you know, the church um, delivers millions in, in help to um, to fight homelessness in Utah, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, another point that he uh, emphasized was that the church shouldn't be considered a replacement for government. It's it's um, it's not a government agency. Um, it 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 does serve its own members because it's a religious institution, and it's the government that ultimately um, should be responsible for providing that safety net for all for all people in the state. 
Yet at the same time, there is this memorandum of understanding between the state and uh, a specific church organization that then lets the state off the hook. Man, that's got to stick in the craw of social service providers that are outside the government and outside the LDS church. Um, where are you taking this story next? Are you going to kind of keep your ear to the ground here in Utah? Or are you moving on to other stories of how um, folks in the Southwest are dealing with poverty? Um, well, I'll certainly keep an, um, keep an eye out for developments in Utah. Um, we are working on some more stories, though, but in Arizona and in Nevada that, that also have to do with the rapidly changing demographics and the kind of bizarre situations that people in poverty can find themselves in based on how those two states um, operate their um, welfare programs, which and those two states are also unique in, in their own ways. So we're kind of we're doing this a little bit state by state here, and I, I encourage people to keep reading. Where can people find your reporting via ProPublica's online presence? Um, well, all the stories are, are at ProPublica.org, and we typically were a nonprofit news organization doing investigative journalism, and we typically partner with local news outlets um, in order to, you know, get this what we're writing about um, in front of readers in the, in the places that matter the most for the story. So that, that's why we partnered with the Salt Lake Tribune, and then this next story will be with the Arizona Republic and so on. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that and uh, have to have you back as we discuss or continue to follow this issue regionally. Thank you, Eli, for giving us some time on Radioactive. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. Eli Hager of ProPublica. Check tonight's show notes for a link to that story. As we close out the year, checking in with some of our nonprofits about the year that was and what's coming up in 2022, wanted to pass the microphone to a nonprofit that offers free resources for educators and learners of all ages about women's history in Utah. And joining me from Better Days is Catherine Kitterman. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Got your latest newsletter, and I thought it was time for a, an update on what's going on because there's a call for public comment about a new Utah a, a new museum of Utah. Want to make sure a broader lens of history is applied there. Also, an update on what's happening with the Martha Hughes Cannon statue that's headed for Statuary Hall back in D.C. But let's start with something fun, and that's your annual student art contest. She started it. That's right. So we're excited to be running this contest for the second year in a row, and we're asking all students in Utah grades 4 to 12 to submit original art that tells us about a Utah woman who's made a difference in history. And that can be, you know, you can interpret that pretty broadly, but anyone from your local community or at a state level or national level who made a difference, we're asking for those submissions by January 24th. So students have quite a while to get their submissions in, and then they can tell us in their artist statement a little bit about what they're inspired to do to follow in that woman's footsteps. And there's bragging rights, cash awards, prizes from local businesses, and more on the line. But if folks are looking for inspiration, they need look no further than your resources online. Yep, they can find everything at utahwomenshistory.org. How many categories are we talking about in terms of, uh, you're talking ages 4 to 12. There's quite a range of ability, I'm guessing, there art-wise. Yeah, we've got grades 4 to 12, so we're splitting it up with grades 4 to 6, 7 to 8, and then 9 to 12. Okay. So three categories there. And then a really cool thing about this is during the next legislative session, there will be an art exhibit. Yeah, we're displaying these at a special event on February 10th 
2022. That sounds so far out in the future, but it's just a couple months away. Um, but that will be at a special event for Utah Women's History hosted by the Lieutenant Governor's Office in the state capitol. Another way to get involved in this art contest art contest is teachers. You can make it part of a lesson plan. And you, you've done all that heavy lifting already, right? Yep. We've got all the resources available. There's lots of women featured on our website. We also have suggestions for reaching out to local historical societies or other ways to find out about women in your own neighborhood who made change happen. So lesson plans, scavenger hunts, virtual field trips, you got all of it. Okay. So that is the art contest. She started it from Better Days. But there's also a call for public comment I wanted folks to be aware of. Get this on their radar. It's the New Museum of Utah. There is a survey out there and you folks can help shape the history of Utah. Tell us about this. Yeah, so this is the museum that will fall under the Department of Cultural and Community Engagement um, for Utah, and it's slated to open in February, excuse me, fall of 2024. So it's a few years out, but they have a couple design options that they're asking for public input on, and we wanted to share the word because it's a great way to shape the way that our stories will be told, and it's fun to see what they're planning. They've got some really great things going on. Well, this is going to be the first state history museum, and I was kind of shocked to read that in your newsletter because I feel like there are places and spots around the state that have Utah history in them, but this is the first one under the state of Utah, it sounds like. Absolutely. So I'm excited to see what they're going to do with it. Obviously, we're very hopeful that they'll include lots of stories of women, um, but it's a really once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-generation opportunity as they're designing this space to tell the story of Utah and what themes we we feel are important to share with visitors. Yeah, and unless we uh, submit our interests and our desires, it's going to be left to a planning committee. So it's really important, folks, that you take this survey. We'll put a link in the show notes. What's the deadline for public comment? Do you know? It is December 16th. Oh, it's coming right up. I believe it's next Thursday. Yes, this is coming right up, folks. All right. I want to know what's happening with Martha Hughes and the statue headed for Statuary Hall. The pandemic has interrupted her travels to D.C. What's going on? Yeah, and I want to know what's happening, too. So Martha is finally going to make her way to the Capitol next year, we believe. Um, We're told by the Send Martha Committee um, that the legislature created that things are underway. So we're waiting on two things. One is the final approval for the base that the statue will stand on in Statuary Hall in, in D.C. And the second is for the Capitol to officially reopen for public events. And that's what we're waiting on to be able to get her installed So that is very likely to happen sometime next year. We expect that it will happen, um, you know, in the next nine to 12 months. Absolutely. So we're gearing up for sending her off and celebrating here in Utah as she makes her way back east. And it was just last month on November 3rd that marked the 125th anniversary of Utah women's first elections to government. And Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon has such a huge place in our in our state history, but women and politics history in particular. She was one of 14 women who won election in 1896. And sometimes I feel like it's been 125 years when it comes to statewide office. So, folks, if you're looking for stocking stuffers, Better Days also has some great items, trading cards and coloring books. What's the website, Catherine, where people can take a look? Yeah, so if you go to utahwomenshistory.org, we've got links for our shop right there in the menu. Anything there that's your favorite that you'd like to recommend, perhaps? I love the trading cards. So they're a series of 50 illustrations by local artist Brooke Smart featuring a diverse range of women who've made change happen in Utah. 
And you'll probably see some familiar names there and a lot of new faces. And I think they're great for framing. And I've got a couple up in my office. Plus the rad ratification pins and stickers, folks. So consider Utah history for your gift giving this Christmas. Catherine, thanks so much for giving me some time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Catherine Kitterman of Better Days, a nonprofit that's dedicated to popularizing Utah women's history in creative and communal ways. Check tonight's show notes for a link. And when we come back, community co-host Nick Burns will be leading a panel discussion with organizers of a virtual climate justice workshop next week that will explore the current climate crisis narrative. To get us from here to there, one of my favorites from the Smiths, stop me if you've heard this one before, on KRCL 90.9. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. If you're a homeowner or renter making 200% or less of the federal poverty rate and need help weatherizing your home, Utah Community Action can help. Visit utahca.org for details. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Thank you for joining us as always on Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM. Next on the show, we want to talk about something that I think is very intriguing, and I can get excited simply with the name, Restructuring the Narrative. And uh, heaven knows, God knows, everyone knows we could use a little bit of restructuring in the nation, uh, especially when it comes to the climate crisis, the narrative around the climate crisis. I think many listeners are probably familiar with how the public relations industry has tried to shape that discussion. But let's break that. Restructuring the narrative will be happening December 14th, 5.30. It'll be by Zoom. We'll give you all the details and put that all in the show notes. But to talk about what's coming up on this panel discussion, Restructuring the Narrative, I want to welcome Muskan Walia, who's a student at the University of Utah. I'm totally impressed. Uh, Muskan, you're studying math and philosophy both. I hope you can blow away the students on both sides. You are one of the leaders and a mentor at UYES, which is the youth, the Utah rather, Youth Environmental Solutions Network. And you work a lot with youth-based climate curriculum. You wanna provide educational resources, mentorship, and organizing tools um, in terms of helping young people all over the state of Utah um, in the area of climate justice. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Oh, thank you. And again, if we had more time, I'd want to talk all about math and philosophy, but specifically you, yes, which is a mouthful for me to get out. Tell me a little bit about that group and your work and this connection to restructuring the narrative. Yeah. So um, you, yes, is um, in its name, it's completely comprised of youth and was started by youth. Um, we have like a few different arms. So, um, currently like the main things that we're working on, um, one is the hundred percent clean energy campaigns in our local school districts. Um, so I am helping with that as well. I'm the student lead in the Davis school district, um, hundred percent clean energy campaign. We have campaigns. We had campaigns in Salt Lake city, um, park city, and we have them in granite and canyons currently. Um, and then the other arm, which, um, is like a pretty critical arm in 
the education piece, which is what kind of Maria and I are working on and our committee is working on. Um, and we are kind of working on this curriculum and this education to like spread to youth across um, Utah to kind of understand um, climate justice and the like current environment that we all have to navigate. So I want to bring Maria in here too and introduce her. But when you talk about youth and education, what age groups are we talking about? I would say I work with youth all the way down to seventh grade. Um, okay. And, and then we can go up to like, I would say early 20s is my definition of youth. Okay. So we're talking about middle school, high school, at least in terms of school district work. So I wondered about reaching out all the way to the, to the youth. Uh, but also joining us uh, today to talk about all of this, Maria Archibald, you are in the Graduate Environmental Humanities Program at the U, and part of your master's thesis is this Utah Youth for Environmental Studies, U, yes, um, event. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be here. And environmental humanities, I just love the sound of that. How does that tie into what you're working on with your master's work in this upcoming event? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the folks in my cohort and I joke about how our our degree, environmental humanities, just sort of means everything <laughs> because really everything is either oh. the environment or humans <laughs> or related to those two things. So um, so that's, that's kind of just a, a thing we joke about. But um, I think this project is sort of a perfect fit within the field of environmental humanities because it brings together obviously people and specifically youth. And we're sort of like asking this question about how do we design curriculum that um, mobilizes young people to become climate activists and also sort of provides the resources and tools that young people need, not only to kind of become part of the movement, but also to sustain, sustain their activation in the movement. Um, so it's this very kind of like social question that we're asking around like how can we put together a curriculum that is influential in people's lives in this particular way in a way that mobilizes and then sustains um, that mobilization and then of course the climate justice element of the curriculum is kind of where the environmental piece comes in and um we really, I mean, you know, climate justice has it in the name. We approach our work and this curriculum through a very justice focused lens. So um, we're not really talking much about, you know, biodiversity or species or um, species loss, these kinds of things. I mean, of course those things come into the discussion, but we really start from a place at looking at these um, systems of oppression like colonialism, like white supremacy, um, like, um, patriarchy and sort of starting to understand how these big systems that oppress people are the same systems um, that have led to the climate crisis and to the massive environmental issues that we're facing. So these sort of more specific environmental topics come in, but they're not really the focus. The focus is looking at these massive social systems that we've created that manage to oppress both people and the environment simultaneously. Well, it's not like you've set your sights too high or anything. I mean, really. Um, cover that in an evening. But you you uh, have a background as a teacher too. So I find that very intriguing. Yeah, I um, I worked for a couple of years in science education okay. when I was right out of undergrad. I did some work in Maine, in Colorado and in California, um, mostly with like middle school aged students. 
Um, and then the last four years I worked for the, before I came back to grad school, I worked at the Grand Canyon Trust, which is a nonprofit organization um, that is kind of based on the Colorado Plateau. Um, and I managed the Rising Leaders Program there. So did sort of similar work to what UES is doing, worked with uh, mostly high school and college age students around um, building curriculum, building training programs, um, mobilizing people around climate actions, things like that. Okay, very good. Muskan, bring you back in here. Restructuring the narrative, Tuesday the 14th, upcoming, 5.30, gonna be on Zoom. If I read the notes here, I read about art, stories, music, movement. Um, all of those are sort of things you want to weave together with this event. I'm intrigued by that. And, and what can people expect? Yeah, so um, I think that during the event, there's going to be um, a lot of like intimate conversations and what we, and Maria, feel free to jump in on this, but um, I think that what we have found just in our like meetings and just talking with other youth and when we began this initial process was that in a lot of these conversations, they're very exclusive because like Maria mentioned, it's like biodiversity and specialization or whatever Maria even said, like, I don't even know. Um, but like what really gets people in and can connect people across different, um, I guess, barriers or boundaries is, is stories and is, is artwork. Um, because that has a, it's, it's more inclusive and it allows those people, um, we've been having discussions about like the people who have been left out historically are the ones that are kind of like at the front lines and facing the oppression at the greatest degree. And so really like the way that we, we touch people and touch people across different boundaries and kind of like, um, build understanding and like communication, um, and community is through these like stories and this artwork and music. Um, so we're trying to get like an initial kind of get our hands wet a little bit with this event that's happening. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of Pete Seeger's banjo where the writing says this machine kills fascists. And I wonder about here, you work with school districts and in Utah, I'll go out on a limb here and say many of the school districts and the parents are somewhat conservative. Um, and there might be some pushback against climate crisis as terminology or active teaching is art a way to kind of be subversive and get the message out there? Yeah. Or Maria, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great question. And um, I think absolutely, I think art is something that is can be particularly effective, especially with divisive conversations, because um, everyone can have their own interpretation of art. And so I think it's a way to reach people where they are. Um, and people can kind of take art and interpret it in the ways that they're ready for or in the ways that kind of um, align with their own values or their own experiences. Um, and I think, you know, Muskan just talked a lot about story and I think story does the same thing, you know, because we could get up on our pedestal and, and talk about the facts of climate change, but I think the likelihood is that that's not going to reach people who might be skeptical of climate change or might feel, feel threatened politically by those types of conversations. Yeah. But I think people's personal stories are something that we can't deny. Like we can't deny someone's lived experience. And so hearing stories, I think is a way to connect um, in, in just a more intimate way and in a more authentic way and in a way that doesn't divide people. Um, 
but rather sort of brings people together through some some type of shared grain of an experience, even if the entire experience isn't a shared one. And it's something that's, um, yeah, it's stories I think can be a political statement, but they aren't inherently political statements. They're inherently people's own lived truths and experiences. And hearing people's stories, I think is just a much more accessible way to connect with some of these bigger topics that um, otherwise could be divisive. And we certainly hear that on the international level, folks who live in nations that are only three feet above sea level definitely have stories to tell. This is Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM. I am Nick Burns, and we are talking with Muskan and Maria about the upcoming event, Restructuring the Narrative, hosted by UYES here in Utah, as well as the Sierra Club, part of their ongoing efforts to educate and inform and help everybody cope and do better when it comes to the climate crisis. So take me through, and I'm not sure which of you um, to toss this question to, but this event, partnering with the Sierra Club Utah, Utah chapter, partnering with you, yes, and uh, the Movement Building Medicine, I love that name too, to host this restructuring the narrative. What can people expect on Tuesday um, at 5.30 when they zoom in? What actually will be going on? I can, I can start Maria, that. you want to take that? Okay. Yeah, and then Muskan, you want to jump in maybe after and fill in some of the blanks. But um, yeah, I think some of it will be a surprise for us too, because we are partnering with Movement Building Medicine. So we've sort of worked with them on, on figuring out like the skeleton, I guess, of okay. what the workshop will be. But um, we're bringing in these guest facilitators from Movement Building Medicine. So I think they'll be kind of um, figuring out a lot of the details and, and I think it will also be very emergent. But a big part of what we want to emphasize with this curriculum is um, visioning for the future and um, an imagination. So there's a quote and I can't remember off the top of my head who to attribute it to, but one of my professors last year always brought this quote up that um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Um, and I think that that quote really stuck with me and actually feels extremely true because I think especially in environmental work and environmental justice work, it's like we, we know what's wrong and we're really good at talking about what's wrong and fighting against what's wrong. But sometimes it's hard to remember what we're fighting for because we're not there yet. We haven't created what we're fighting for. And that's that's not entirely true. There's a lot of different communities around the world and indigenous people who have been living in regenerative ways and like have that traditional and historical knowledge. Um, but as far as like dominant Western society goes, capitalism is the water we swim in and it can be really hard to imagine something beyond that. So I think the focus of this workshop is really gonna be around imagination and sort of trying to dream up like, okay, if we have a world without these oppressive systems, what does that look like? What do we wake up to in the morning? What, what you know, do our children experience when, when they go to bed at night or when they like, you know, go out into the world every day? And um, like, what is it that we want in the place of these oppressive systems that we're currently um, in the midst of? So I think that's gonna be a big part of it. And I think it's gonna, um, focus on these personal stories and these kind of like personal dreams and ideas about, you know, what makes you feel safe and how can we make that a reality in our communities? Okay. So this could be a, this event will be a place to learn, not just a place to hear stories. I quite like that. 
And certainly when it comes to capitalism for millennials or for Gen Z, I think they probably are much smarter than to accept that party line of democracy is capitalism. Um, and that, you know, a market economy is not capitalism either, which we've heard recently right here in Utah. I mean, markets have been around a long time and capitalism hasn't. Um, Muskan, maybe I would ask you this one. Are you a presenter at this or who all will, will you know, attendees be hearing from? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so like Maria mentioned, we will have two, um, two folks from Movement Building Medicine who have okay. kind of like fleshed this out. And um, Maria and I and the team will be there. And I think what's so special about the curriculum is that we are learning alongside like the development of it. Um, so like we will be there and learning as well from these facilitators and we're kind of, um, it's like another opportunity to, um, understand kind of Utah and the people that reside here, um, and their thoughts and kind of incorporating that into, into the curriculum so that it's representative because obviously our, our team is, is relatively small, I guess you could say. So, um, in order to be represent all of the voices that need to be represented, um, these are like great ways this is a great way for us to um, incorporate that. Well, I mean, that's fantastic pedagogy when when teachers are learners and learners are teachers. And that sounds like what you're talking about. I'm intrigued already, right? That the people running it are also learning and the people who are there to learn are also participating. I think that's pretty fantastic. Uh, do you do other events like this? Are there other you, yes events coming up that you or all of you are working on? Yeah, so um, we basically, this project in a nutshell is um, we're working on designing a curriculum that we're hoping to launch in the spring of 2022. Um, and the group that's designing it is about six people, um, well, seven people, including me. Um, and Muscon is one of those people. And then there's there's five other young folks, um, mostly I think between the ages of like 16 and 22, um, that are working to design this curriculum kind of collaboratively. and. We've uh, decided, we, we use a consensus decision-making model and together we've all decided that this curriculum um, will have four chapters. So the first chapter is gonna be, it's called Who, Who We Are. And it's all about like identity and like what brings us to this space. And it's sort of like an opportunity to lay the groundwork and become um, connected to each other and sort of like build, um, build this organizing space, I guess, into, into a home for people, into like a sense of belonging. Um, the second chapter is called How We Got Here. And this is sort of about the historical roots of the climate crisis and looking into, you know, the systems in place that um, kind of are the origin stories of white supremacy, of capitalism, of colonialism, and how those things work together to create uh, the climate crisis. Um, the third chapter is called Where We Go From Here, and that's the one that we're working on designing the like ins and outs of right now, hence this restructuring the climate workshop um, or the climate narrative workshop that we're doing with movement building medicine, because this chapter, uh, what, Where We Go From Here is all about kind of like dreaming for the future, like what are our paths forward, how can we restructure um, are the systems that we live in so that we can have regenerative communities and economies and ecosystems. 
Um, and then the, the last chapter, chapter four, is called How Do We Get There? So that's kind of like diving into these organizing tactics and tools and strategies. So like, how do we build a movement to get us from where we are to where we want to go? Um, and so for each chapter, um, as okay. we plan it, we're hosting workshops like this one, um, where we'll invite the community to come and partake in a workshop that's kind of in alignment with the topics and themes of that chapter. So right now, since we're working on chapter three, which is where do we go from here, um, we're having this imaginative kind of like future building workshop with movement building medicine. Very cool. Thank you very much, Maria Archibald. You are in the graduate program of environmental humanities up at the U. Part of your master's project is the Utah Youth for Environmental Solutions, U-YES. So thank you for being on the show. We'll put all the links and whatnot for how folks can uh, RSVP and join this event. But thank you for your work and appreciate you taking time to be with us. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Muskan Walia also with us. She is studying math and philosophy. Congratulations. I just think that's fantastic. Makes me want to go to school again. Up at the U, you are a leader, Muskan, at, and a mentor at U. Yes, you work with school districts. And thank you for your time and your involvement. Thank you so much. And a shout out to where folks can find out more. Um, you can go to our Instagram or Sierra Club Utah's Instagram. Um, to follow along our journey. So pretty cool and easy to reach the youth on Instagram. When you have another chapter and you're gonna do another event like this uh, in this ongoing effort, please come back, chat with Radioactive again. Would love Thank to, you. Thank you so much. Thank you to you both. And we'll put these links and whatnot in the show notes as well. And uh, go continue doing good work. I think it's fantastic. It gives me some optimism and I appreciate that. And I need it. Thank you, Nick Burns. And that is our show. I'm Laura Jones. Thank you so much for listening to Radioactive, for contributing your time every night at 6, and for your financial support. You can always hear the show again online at krcl.org. Have a great night, and thanks for listening. I've got room for a couple more songs. Since I already got in the Wayback Machine once, how about we do it again? Let's go. The Cars on KRCL 90.9.